Tiny homes have become all the rage. You've seen these small structures, kind of one room, everything compact. Admit it, you've watched one of those DIY shows about building your own tiny home and dreamt of what life might be like. Wouldn't it be nice to downsize, get rid of all the clutter, children, and only have 96 <laughs> square feet to clean? Simple. Simple. Joe Stevens has dreamt of tiny houses too. He's the head of Joppa. Maybe you've heard of Joppa, an organization that fights to end homelessness in Des Moines. And he believes that tiny houses are the key to ending homelessness in Des Moines. In a November article nationally syndicated by the Associated Press, Joe Stevens said that he is overwhelmed at times by the intense, sometimes tearful support that he receives from churches, from schools, from service groups for his plan to use this trendy little structures to help homeless people. Even our own students at Norwalk High School built a tiny home for Joppa. But, but the article continues, when Stevens actually tried to create a village of homes, tiny homes in Des Moines, the response was far different. Joppa proposed erecting 50 tiny homes on this five-acre industrial site just north of downtown. But we got shot down, says Stevens. It was a sense of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, a knee-jerk reaction. Chris Galusha, the president of the American Tiny House Association, yes, there is an American Tiny House Association, says that people say tiny houses are great and cool, and you can put that village anywhere but right across the street from my subdivision. I mean, what would happen if you build a tiny house neighborhood for the homeless near our homes? Our property values may fall. What would happen if those people may live here? They may obstruct my view, after all. Don't mess with my view. Now, sociologists call this response to things like tiny homes nimbyism. Have you heard of the nimbys? N-I-M-B-Y, not in my backyard, NIMBY. It's a term that refers to those of us who oppose certain things being built near our homes, in our neighborhoods. Maybe it's a new school or a new road, a hotel or a new fast food restaurant. Maybe it's affordable housing, an apartment complex, a new shopping area that we may frequent once it's built. It may be a good idea. It may even be needed. But can't you build it over there? Not here. Not in my Backyard. Reading our story this morning, I wonder, I wonder what would happen if Jesus moved into our backyard. Now, John begins his gospels proclaiming from, from chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I like how the message paraphrases this verse. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God moved into the neighborhood. What happens when Jesus moves into the neighborhood? Two weeks ago, Marty shared with us that story of Jesus calling his first disciples, Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, and Jesus offered them a simple invitation, come and see. What will God in the flesh and blood look like? Well, come and see. Last week, we came to Cana to the wedding, and we saw Jesus' first miracle, what John calls a sign, a sign that shows us what this flesh and blood God who moves into our neighborhood looks like. And what did it look like? Well, it looked like 
a party. A party that would go on and on, that the supplies, the wine would never run out. And we like the idea of a partying Jesus. It was kind of fun to imagine that last week. But let's be honest, is this the kind of guy you want moving into your neighborhood? The free wine may be nice, but think of the noise. Think of the crowd he may attract. From the wedding feast, Jesus heads to the temple. And I don't know about you, but I was taught as a kid that there's a proper way to act when you go into the house of God. Maybe you had this lesson too. You dress right. I wore my tie and my jacket this morning to show off the proper way to dress in God's house. You got to act right, be quiet, listen, do what you're told, act respectfully. No running in God's house, no food or drink in the sanctuary. Sit up, shut up, and listen up. That's how you act. And I remember one time when I was a kid, we had a guest speaker at our church. I think it was a Saturday. We went to church on Saturday sometimes. And I was sitting up front with kind of that second row with a friend. And the guest speaker, I remember his name, but I won't tell you in respect of the dead. But he was going on and on. And I began chatting with my friend next to me. And he stopped right in the middle of his lesson, stopped and pointed at me. He didn't know me. He was a guest. He didn't even live in our town. And he pointed at me and called me out in the middle. Now, I was a good kid, an elder's kid. I behaved. But he called me out in the middle of church. I was disrespecting church, disrupting the worship service. And I got in trouble. And when I got home, I got in more trouble. The punishment for talking, disrupting in God's house was that I had to sit quietly through all the other sermons. And there were still several more to go. And I had to take copious notes, handwritten notes. And then at the end of this gospel meeting, I showed the guest speaker my notes. Showed him I was not the kid that disrupted church. I was the one who paid attention, who had proper respect in God's house. Because that's how you're supposed to act in God's house, right? Because, well, that's what Jesus would do. I saw the other day a picture on Facebook. It said, the next time someone asks you, W. WJD, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. (laughs) Jesus goes into God's house and he doesn't sit quietly in worship. He doesn't listen. He's not taking notes. He makes a whip and actually it sounds like he planned this. He brought the cords with him to make this whip. He knew what he was doing. He drives out the animals. He pours all the money changers' coins out onto the floor. Did you catch that detail? It's not just he flipped the tables over. He takes their coins and just kind of dumps them on the floor. Kind of like a a bit of a jerk, really. Just one by one, dumping them all over the floor. Maybe people ran and grabbed the coins as they clanked on the temple floor. He turns over the tables and then he yells at everyone. Yells right in the middle of worship in the middle of the temple. Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Now it's Passover time and everyone was in town for the holiest of festivals. Years before they used to celebrate Passover at home as a family around the table as they did that first Passover in Exodus. But once Herod rebuilt the temple, Passover became this huge festival held only at the temple. And it was, well, also a big fundraiser. Families would travel from far away from the corners of the Jewish world. And they had to offer an animal for sacrifice. But who wants to bring an animal that far? What might happen? It will slow you down so they could buy one at the temple. So they sold them at the temple. They made it more convenient. It wasn't a bad thing necessarily. Except sometimes 
After the trip, the family could not afford the price of the animals. And sometimes they would bring their own because that's all they could do. They would bring their best and they would be told that their best wasn't good enough. They needed to buy one from the temple. They didn't have the money. On top of all that, they had to pay the temple tax. It was their tithe, except it wasn't voluntary. This is how they paid for this grand temple with this tax. And you had to pay it before you could worship your price for entry. People would come all from all different parts, different countries. They had different currencies, but they had to pay it in the local currency. So they had the money changers at the temple. It was convenient having the money changers right there. They could change their money. They could pay and get on with their worship, except some of them charged too much. Some of the exchange rates weren't fair. They took advantage of the poor. Now, Jesus had just left a wedding party, as we saw last week. He turned water into wine. God's grace made available for everyone free of charge. And then he enters the temple. And there's a price for entry, barrier after barrier for people who were just trying to worship God. And Jesus gets angry. Jesus goes berserk. And I don't know about you, but I kind of prefer tame Jesus. Jesus with that white Toga, baby blue sash, honey brown hair, blue eyes, white skin. Jesus who speaks softly, who hugs, who smiles, who's safe. Our own personal Jesus. In Sunday school, we used to sing a song. I wish I had a little blue box. Anybody sing this song? Thank God. I wish I had a little blue box to put my Jesus in. I take him out and, and put him back again. It's horrible. It's horrible. But Jesus in a box. We had a box for Satan, too, in the Bible. It was, it was fun. It was VBS. This is, this is how we got our kicks. But Jesus in a box. Kind of attractive, isn't it? Jesus at a safe distance, taking out whenever it's convenient, putting back when you don't want him around. He may say radical things. That's part of the novelty of Jesus. And we laugh, maybe even roll our eyes, perhaps say amen. Yeah, yeah, that's good, Jesus. And then tuck him away because he's not talking to us. He's talking to other people. Take him out and let him talk to you. But when he talks to me, let's stuff him back in that box. Jesus out of the box. Jesus moving into our neighborhood. Jesus meddling with our business. Obstructing our view. I don't know. Those who oppose Jesus in the gospel, John calls them the Jews. But we should know that, well, they're all Jews. Jesus was a Jew, but this is John's term for referring to this certain group of Jews, religious leaders who stood in the way of Jesus, who opposed what Jesus said and did, who wanted Jesus kept in that safe box. And they saw what Jesus had done and they said to him, what sign can you give us for what you are doing? What sign can you show us for doing this? Which is loosely translated by what authority do you come in here and start messing with the way we do things? And Jesus replies, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the group of religious leaders can't believe what they hear, this temple. It's been under construction for 46 years, Jesus. This is a huge building project, and you're going to tear it down and raise it up in three days? 46 years they've been building this temple. How dare Jesus come in and mess it up? How dare he question the way they have been doing things? How dare he suggest that God could live anywhere but safely inside these temple walls? And John, our narrator, interjects for us, telling us what if we're already paying attention, we knew. 
But Jesus, well, he's not talking about the temple, is he? He's talking about the temple of his body in three days. We know what that means. Three days, it will rise up again. God in the flesh, not in the temple, but in the flesh, in Jesus. God come near, God moving into your neighborhood, in your own backyard. But do you want Jesus in your neighborhood? Because as we see today, you can't tame this Messiah. Give him a glass of water and he may turn it into wine. Invite him over for dinner and he may turn the table over. Do you really want someone like that in your neighborhood, in your own home? Challenging assumptions and systems, meddling with the way things have always been, calling into question what took 46 years or more to build. Do you really want Jesus obstructing your view? He throws over the tables, but soon he will die on the cross and throw out anything and everything that will stand in the way of people and their God. For Jesus is God in the flesh, not God locked up in a temple, not God locked up in proper belief and action and well-behaved church folk and our traditions in the way we've always done it. But Jesus is God in the flesh. Living among us, God comes so close we can feel it, see it right here. God moving into our neighborhood. God setting up his home in our backyard. Will we run him out of our backyard, out of the neighborhood? Or will we accept that invitation to come and see? It may mean that our view will be obstructed, but forever we will be changed. Amen.